You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Belinda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. On July 23, 1969, the Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins began their re-entry in the command module from the moon back to the Earth, splashing down in the South Pacific the following day. President Nixon observed the splashdown from the naval vessel, the USS Hornet. He greeted the astronauts and the mobile quarantine unit. Gee, you look great. You feel as good as oh, you look. Feel great. Feel just perfect, Mr. Yeah, President. Yeah. Are you? I understand your Frank Borman says you're a little younger by reason of having going into space. Is that right? Do you feel that way, a little younger? We're a lot younger than Frank Borman. <laughs> Fifty years later, the Nixon Foundation honored Buzz Aldrin with its greatest comeback award during a dinner at the Nixon Library. The name of the award signifies Nixon's ability to face challenges, always come back from setbacks, and achieve victory throughout his life and career. Aldrin was being honored for his and fellow Apollo 11 astronauts' remarkable comeback to Earth that was one for the ages. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, President Trump's special envoy for hostage affairs, and Aldrin's personal lawyer presented the award. O'Brien remarked that introducing Aldrin was like introducing Christopher Columbus or Meriwether Lewis, except that neither Columbus or Lewis went to the moon. Nixon Foundation President and CEO Hugh Hewitt was the master of ceremonies and interlocutor in the evening discussion. Hewitt quoted the great Union general during the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant. I read but few lives of great men because biographers do not, as a rule, tell enough about the formative period of life. What I want to know is what a man did as a boy. At the beginning of the discussion, the Apollo 11 astronaut was quick to note his real name. My name is not Edwin Eugene Aldrin Jr. anymore. I legally changed it. It is Buzz. Buzz. Plain Buzz. Well, certainly my father's uh, aviation history is, is really uh, very admirable and had a great influence from a Swedish family. He was born in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, Worcester. And he uh, graduated from high school in short pants at 15. Went to Clark University there. His physics professor was Robert Goddard. Robert Goddard invented the liquid-fueled rocket and ushered in the space age. The senior Eugene was his protege at Worcester Polytechnic. He got a master's degree from Worcester Polytech, then started at MIT in Cambridge. And uh, this is 1919 now. Uh, and he was called into the service, and they wanted to put him in the Coast Artillery. They said, no, no, no. Listen, I'm writing my thesis here at MIT on spinning airplanes, you're going to have to put me in the Signal Corps. That's where the airplanes were then. So his first assignment was to the Philippines as an aide to Billy Mitchell. Come on, explain it to the other people at the table. The court-martial of Billy Mitchell was a great movie when uh, when I grew up. 
I don't want to go into those details, but but my father was uh, uh, involved in the formation of the uh, engineering school at uh, McCook Field, Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, became the Air Force Institute of Technology. And to just show you how things come around, the Air Force Institute of Technology paid for my doctor's degree at MIT. The union between the elder Aldrin and Buzz's mother Marion proved to be serendipitous. Marion's maiden name says it all. When my father was in the Philippines with uh, uh, he ran into an army chaplain who had two daughters and a son and he sort of took a fancy to the older daughter and uh, so they uh, were pretty close. So dad decided to go back to the States and come back and get married so that then they could come back and uh, ride elephants, uh, not elephants, but uh, camels around, around the pyramids. Uh, now her name was Marion Moon. That's right, that's right. And I had an uncle, Bob Moon, and a cousin, Bobby Moon. I don't know why that happened that way, but uh, it just did. The younger Aldrin was too destined for a career in the military. He graduated third in his class from the United States Military Academy. He amusingly tells the story of why he decided to attend West Point rather than the Naval Academy. My father had been in the Pacific during World War II, and he kind of came to the conclusion that there were more successful businessmen from the Naval Academy than there were from West Point. So he wanted me to go to the Naval Academy. And I said, no, you, you don't understand. We went out deep sea fishing off of Maine, and I got sick, you know. I, and besides that, I want to fly, why in the world would I ever want to land an airplane on a ship that's bouncing around in the water and very short landing strip? No, no, I want to go to uh, West Point. There wasn't an Air Force Academy then. So I enrolled in West Point, uh, almost the youngest, 17 from the youngest in the class at age 17. And uh, this is 1947, and uh, the Unification Act split apart the services. So there was the US Air Force. And uh, about that time, they began thinking about a separate service. So at West Point, uh, I began to put my sights on being able to graduate and uh, enter into the Air Force. Now, big distinction between the wisdom of the Army, West Point, and the Navy. At West Point, 
you get your choice of branch based on merit. Merit is your rating in military leadership and your academic reading. Not the Naval Academy. It's a lottery that tells whether you're in the submarines or a battleship or a minesweeper or sitting on the ground. Now this uh, successful businessman. Now at West Point they teach leadership. Leadership of a platoon, second lieutenant, a company, first lieutenant, captain, a battalion, then kind of up the line and, and your performance is measured by the performance of those underneath you that you're leading. So it really stresses leadership. But you become a pilot, Dr. Aldrin, and uh, Robert O'Brien mentioned this, and I'd like no, you to expand let me, on it. Let me just finish. All right. Because uh, father, my father said, uh, or the conclusion is that West Pointers uh, become insurance salesmen and, and the Naval Academy people be, become uh, successful businessmen. And that's because at the Naval Academy, your first assignment as an ensign is on a minesweeper uh, or a destroyer. And the captain deals with the sailors, but he has bosun mates and warrant officers and all sorts of other layers of people. But the ensign doesn't deal with the sailors that much. His job is to look above the chain of command, above his captain, to the higher authority, and he kind of makes friends up there and finds out what is expected of his captain. In the business world, this is called networking. Like many of the astronauts, Aldrin pursued a career in aviation. Though he wasn't a test pilot like Armstrong and Collins, he also held a distinguished record of service during the Korean War. So I had uh, uh, Sam on my wing. Sam had gone through pilot training with me in Florida, Texas, and then Las Vegas, where we uh, were uh, learning gunnery training. Air-to-air uh, -air gunnery, shooting at a tag, uh, at a target, and then strafing, dive bombing. So Sam was flying on my wing, and and the leader and his wingman went one way, and so we were looking to see when these MiGs were gonna start heading north to get back home. And sure enough, there were a couple of them. And uh, so by the time we got behind them, we were maybe oh, 2,000 feet behind, and uh, that's not really close enough to get much of a hit by shooting at them, but you might scare them a little bit if you fire at them. And, and if they turn, why then you can begin to intercept them. Well, they didn't turn. 
but I was persistent and I kept going. Then I looked at my gas gauge and it's getting kind of low. So I said, hey, Sam, we got to go home. So I turned around and headed back south to our base. Looked around, no Sam. No, Sam, where are you? Where are you? <laughs> Be right with you. <laughs> he was still following up north. This is Sam Johnson, oh, congressman from Texas. from Texas. Shot down in an F-105, six and a half years as a POW in Hanoi Hilton. A distinguished congressman. And he was your wingman. He was my wingman. So he's behind me, and I said, hey, Sam, I'll make a, a circle. That's a 360 over Pyongyang, and maybe you can catch up. Well, not quite, but we headed to the base, and he had to shut the engine down and glide and then start the engine up and make a landing. It wasn't our home base, but it was one a little further north. We got on the ground, got in the telephone to talk to the squadron commander. Man, was he pissed off. <laughs> well, the first MiG was real easy. We were just looking. The guy must have been training. And there were two of them down there just south of the river. So I had a second lieutenant. Uh, well, I was a second lieutenant. <laughs> and uh, so I went down and just gradually closed up on him. Easy as could be. Snuck up behind, started shooting. And uh, then I see the canopy comes off and a flash and the guy ejects. First gun camera film they ever had of a big pilot ejecting. And it made uh, Life Magazine picture of the week. Aldrin went on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to study for his doctorate. It wasn't a PhD he earned, it was an SED. He makes that distinction. His thesis was titled, Line of Sight Guidance Techniques for Manned Orbital Rendezvous. You graduated, this was uh, not mentioned by Ambassador O'Brien, you graduated third in your class. Mike Pompeo was first in his class, but... You then got a PhD, which Mike Pompeo did not get, from MIT. Am I right about that? Well, actually, you know, uh, this is SCD. It's, it's more technical, the oh. doctor of science. Right. Well, I want to go back before that, a because PhD you PhD is... Uh, is what? PhD's a little lower? Well, you, you give a snow job to the professors and you get a PhD. <laughs> that was my specialty at uh, MIT, rendezvous in space. That's your, that's your dissertation, isn't it? That's your dissertation. Yes, yes. 
and and there were two programs that were considered for Apollo. One was a very big rocket, specialized by uh, Werner von Braun in Huntsville. And he wanted to build this big rocket. The only trouble is it wouldn't quite be ready by the time the President Kennedy uh, wanted us to get to the moon. So he could use two Saturn Vs and uh, put up a, a big rocket, then put the crew up, join them together, go to the moon, and a very big spacecraft. And this was uh, going to cost a lot of money, and it took two big rockets. But an engineer from another NASA center, John Hubolt, didn't know him then, but I sure got to know him later because he sort of became a role model for me. And, and he's the one that developed sending two spacecraft together. One of them would separate, make a landing. Then it would come back up and rendezvous with the other spacecraft. So in 1961 and early 62, there was this debate going back and forth. And I'm working on my thesis of rendezvous. And I finally finished it up around the end of 62. And that was about the time that it was decided that lunar orbit rendezvous was going to be the way we would go to the moon. Now, I turned in my thesis. But now we're going to do something around the moon instead of around the Earth. So I picked up my punch cards and changed the gravity of the Earth or the gravity of the moon. And it worked out fine. So, so you talk about timing. Now, it just happened that, that what I had evolved in the way of concentric orbit going from one orb to another in, in a rather simplified rendezvous, came along at just the time that a decision was made that that's the way we're going to go to the moon. Of the Apollo 11 mission, Aldrin tells a comical story about the decision that went to setting foot on the moon with Neil Armstrong. After landing, the mission planning allowed for two things to happen. One is to have a sleep period, six, eight, year, eight hours, or to go outside and explore outside. And it could be one or the other. Um, so as a crew, we decided that if we were tired because we had to go around a couple times before we landed. Uh, we didn't want to have the flight plan say we were going to go out right away because we would have to request mission control if they could uh, let us sleep first. And that would make things sound worse to the public. So being smart astronauts, we decided that the flight plan would have 
the sleep period first. But if we landed and felt great, we would ask Mission Control, and they knew this, to change the sleep period so we would go outside first. So that's what we did. Okay. Now we came back in. Uh, now when, when Neil got down to the bottom of the ladder, we had both decided that uh, uh, we might get tired outside and the bottom of the ladder was quite a ways from the ground. So we probably ought to jump in one six gravity and see whether we could make it easily. So Neil got down to the bottom of the ladder, jumped on up to the bottom rung. You don't really see that in, uh, in that television, but, but I, looking out my side window, I could sort of see him doing that. So then I watched him uh, pick up a contingency sample, and then I sent the camera down to him on a clothesline so that uh, when I got down here, he could take my picture while I'm coming down. <laughs> so I come down the ladder now, I get to the bottom, I jump down, and now I'm gonna jump back up again. But I missed. I didn't jump hard enough. So the bottom rung of the ladder hit my shins. Didn't hurt, obviously, but Neil had put dust when he stepped up to the bottom rung of the ladder. So on my shins, you can see little smudges in every picture <laughs> of me outside. Now I of have course, a, the next time I made it all the way up. I have a question. That, that's a point of trivia, of course. You know, you can't expect to be a winner every time. <laughs> the quote, Houston, we have a problem, couldn't have been more applicable to Aldrin and Armstrong before they launched from the lunar module from the moon to unite with Michael Collins in the command module before they returned home. So, it's cold in there, and we got to uh, get ready to sleep. And uh, being a co-pilot, I said to Neil, I take dibs on the floor. That it was only one flat place in that whole lander, and that was the floor. So I laid down on the floor, put my head on the right side, that's where the co-pilot is, and uh, I kind of looked, we dimmed the light, and I saw in the dust something that uh, just didn't belong there. It was uh, about that big, black, plastic, with a little neural on the end. And those of you who are familiar with circuit breakers, this was the end of a broken circuit breaker, lying there on the floor. Uh-oh. <laughs> I wonder what circuit breaker it is. So I get up, and the lights are on, and I look the rows. Of course, some of them are out because you don't want power. You don't want power on the jettison parachutes. Well, we didn't have those in the lamp, but it's an example where you don't want somebody to throw the switch 
and you have power. I think you might jettison the parachutes when you're around the moon. That's, that's not too smart. So some of them are in and some of them are out. So I look along the rows and here's some out, here's some in. Oh, here's one that's not in and it's not out. And the label above it says engine arm. Wow. That's the one that's out when you get into it. When you get ready to land, you push it in and you start the engine, you make a landing, you land, you pull it out. Now you do your stuff on the surface, you get ready to go home, you push it in, you lift off and you go home. Not if it's broken off on the, on the floor. So, uh, Houston, <laughs> you got a problem. <laughs> well, we missed that line. We saved it for Apollo 13. Uh, Buzz, we have 10 minutes left. Okay. I got I to gotta ask about no, no. Richard. Okay. I, I, okay, so they said, look, we're, we're going to have people look over behind the panels and see if we can find anything. And, uh, and it may take us a while. So uh, you guys up there just uh, go to sleep and we'll tell you when you wake up. <laughs> I thought to myself, what did he say? <laughs> there are two guys up here, and we may not get home. And they just said, go to sleep. We'll tell you when you wake up. Well, what they told us was they couldn't find any way to fix it. So they said, what you're going to have to do, instead of just immediately before the computer is going to turn the engine on, we'll do that two hours early. So now we get into the countdown. And uh, I look at my little finger and I figure now I could push it in, but there's electricity back there. And maybe that's not too smart. But I got a ballpoint pen. Uh oh, that's metal. That's not too smart either. But I did have a felt tip pen, pushed it in, and Houston says, hey, we got power, let's go. <laughs> so in two hours, we go through the countdown. And uh, I, I know what's going on in mission control. You know, the, the flight director is checking with everybody there, and they're each saying to him, uh, his name is Flight, uh, go Flight, go Flight. And then he says to the guy who talks to us, he says, Capcom, or go for liftoff. And the guy who was Capcom says, uh, Tranquility Base, you're cleared for liftoff. I've been thinking a little bit. Roger Houston, we're number one on the runway. <laughs>
That was Buzz Aldrin on the 50th anniversary of his and fellow Apollo 11 astronauts' re-entry from the moon to the Earth on July 23, 1969, during ceremonies at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Melinda. 